Well, it was several years ago uh, that the author, Sky Jatani, was teaching a class in his church on these very words, the Sermon on the Mount in Jesus. And he said that uh, on the first day of the class, they sat down and they read this entire sermon all the way through. And after reading the sermon in its full, uh, together in this this room, which is filled with lifelong evangelical Christians, Sky asked this question. How many of you think that Jesus actually expects us to live out these commands? How many of you think that Jesus actually expects us to live out these commands? Sky said that not a single person in that room raised their hand. One person said that it was impossible. No one could live that way. Another, Sky wrote, said that Jesus was illustrating what a perfect life looks like and how, quote, none of us can attain it. At the time, Sky wrote that he was amazed at the logical contortions these committed churchgoers employed to nullify Jesus' command, even neutering the parable at the end of the sermon about the perils of not obeying his words. However, since then, Sky writes that he has discovered just how exceedingly common this mindset is among modern Christians. It seems, he writes, that far too many Christians believe it is enough to display a Bible. Following it is entirely optional. This, I believe, is the biggest tragedy facing our church today. Not a decline in attendance, a loss of power, or or anything else, but it's the failure to produce true disciples of Jesus Christ. The church today, by and large, has dismissed the very words and teachings of Jesus as, quote, ideals, which which, which could never practically work and are simply unattainable. And in direct defiance of the command of Christ, we have absolved ourselves of the responsibility to, quote, put these words into practice. Sky goes on to write, As I continued to witness how eager... Many evangelicals were to dismiss Jesus' words. I began to understand the negative perception the broader culture has of Christians. Although Christians often claim to be marginalized for taking Jesus too seriously, I'm convinced it's exactly the opposite. The negative perception of evangelicals in America is caused by our not taking Jesus seriously enough. Church, I want to ask you this morning. What if Jesus was serious with these words? What if he truly did desire that we put them into practice? What if we did more than just give our Bibles a prominent place within our homes? What if we, what if we actually opened them and read these words, read what it says, and then, by the grace of God, what if we actually put these words into practice? That kind of a revival might just be the grounds for a new reformation. (laughs) As I've already stated, church, we are continuing our sermon series exploring these very ideas. We're not looking to create a new faith, but to discover an ancient one which seems to have been abandoned. The sociologist Michelle Margolis found through her research 
that our political identities are established before our religious identities. In other words, in our culture at least, our political alignment holds more weight than our religious alignment. And what does that mean? Well, it means that on all sides we've, we've attempted to fit the teachings of Christ into our own human systems. Picking and choosing which teachings to uphold based on what our political identity tells us to believe. Let me put it like this. In our culture, cable news has done a far better job at making disciples than the church. Friends, I don't know about you, but I'm not content with leaving things this way. This way. I want to see a church which is again united under that ancient creed, Jesus is Lord. I want to see a world in which the Bible is not held up as some political prop which we use to gain power and influence. I want to see the Bible reclaimed as the word of God which drives us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Simply put, friends, I want to see Christians be Christians. And I want to see the church be the church. Therefore, with this series, I'm calling us back to basics. Looking at the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to really discover what it means for us to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and what it means for us to be called citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Last week, we looked at the kinds of people that make up this great kingdom of heaven. Jesus, uh, these kinds of people that Jesus says make up the kingdom of heaven. These are the people who have a real reason to be happy in life. Not because they're incredibly rich or powerful. Not because they've done something amazing or, or achieved some high merit or great reward for their work. These people are blessed. These people ought to be happy Because these are the people that are going to be found in the kingdom of heaven. And there's no way to buy yourself into it. There's no way to to talk yourself into a seat at the table. It's a position of the heart that highlights your weakness and your inability to achieve it. That primes you for the kingdom of heaven. It's your humility. Not your million dollar private jet. That gives you the good life. Jesus goes on to say this. These people are the salt of the earth. These people are the city on top of the hill. The lamp which gives light to the whole house. These are my people. (laughs) And so up to now, Jesus has laid out the kind of people you're going to find in his kingdom. And now we're really getting into the the meat and potatoes of the sermon. We're getting to the good stuff here. This is... uh, the, what Jesus really wants to get at with this sermon. And this is probably the most easily un- misunderstood part of Jesus' teachings. Jesus begins moving from here in the direction of the ethics which make up his kingdom. You know, church, if I'm, if, uh, if I'm being honest with you... <laughs> I almost found myself wanting to skip over this part of the sermon because I kind of felt like it was a bit unnecessary, right? I mean, (laughs) 
if there is one thing that Christians are really good at, it's telling everyone else what's right and what isn't, right? <laughs> but all jokes aside, I felt like we, I truly felt like we didn't need a lesson on kingdom ethics because I felt like we understood them pretty well. But then I dug deeper into the words of Jesus here and found that he's actually attempting to correct something that in his day had gone askew. And the more that I looked into it, the more that I felt that we in the modern church today had also fallen into a similar trap. And I think this, more than anything, has led us to misunderstand the words of Christ and write them off as simply impractical ideals which just aren't attainable for any of us. And I think it all begins with those very first words read a few moments ago in in verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What, What is Jesus talking about here when he says law and prophets? Well, he's talking about Uh, the major part of what we call today uh, to be the Old Testament. The law, also called the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and then also the major and the minor prophets. You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Habakkuk, Micah, all those guys, right? Jesus says, I'm not coming to abolish these words, but to fulfill them. And that right there tells us a couple very important key details that we cannot miss here. First, it gives us the context that there's probably some people there listening to Jesus who would have thought that Jesus is simply trying to throw out the old way, right? Get rid of all of the law and the prophets. Maybe it was some group of people who thought these words don't really matter to us. They're not really relevant to our daily lives. We're just better off setting them aside And moving on to something else. And to this idea, Jesus firmly says, no, (laughs) that's not what I'm going to do here. In fact, he goes on, until it is all accomplished, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear. Until it is accomplished. This is such a powerful Uh, visual that Jesus gives. Remember, we're talking about the Old Testament here, which was largely written in uh, Hebrew, a language which is very different than ours. And in Hebrew, the smallest mark above a single letter can entirely change the meaning of a word. And specifically, Jesus here, uh, he's he's talking about the Hebrew letter Yah. That is uh, the smallest letter in the Uh, the Hebrew alphabet. It looks a lot kind of like our uh, apostrophes in in, uh, a little bit, our apostrophes in English. It's about the same size. But in Jesus' day, rabbis commonly use this expression to reference, uh, expression and reference to the Yad to make the point that the law was sacred and that no one could say that any one part of the law was too small to be kept. So Jesus says, until it's all accomplished, not even a single yod, not the smallest letter, will disappear. In other words, those words are still important to what I'm here to do today. Sorry to everyone who thought that the Old Testament no longer applies. 
But there's one other thing that I think Jesus is hinting at here with his words. And I think this is really key to understanding everything that is about to follow. uh, With at least the end of chapter 5, possibly even into chapter 6. And that's at this point. The law and the prophets were given to accomplish some sort of purpose. A purpose which Jesus intends to be uh, to see through to its completion. It was the law and the prophets were given to accomplish some sort of purpose. And church, this itself is is a completely radical thought, because Jesus is saying that the teachings of the Torah and of the prophets are important, but not as an end in themselves. They were given as a means toward some other end. In other words, you're not simply supposed to follow Torah for the sake of following Torah. It shouldn't be this, it says it, so we got to do it mentality, right? Jesus is saying following Torah is meant to lead us somewhere. Where exactly is it meant to lead? Righteousness, life, true happiness, and communion with God. I've said it before, but I think it's important to really highlight uh, this here again. The Torah, or, or the law, is a contextual set of practices which were meant to show Israel how to reflect God's character at that time. It's a contextual set of practices for Israel at that time. See, the goal was never to strictly follow these 613 rules for the sake of following these rules. It was that these practices, these were practices which set you apart from the culture around you, while at the same time pointing you closer to the holy God who has called you. And that's why even today I think it's so important for us to study these laws, not so that we can perfectly live them out, but so that we can uncover the underlying principles which point us to life with God. And then once we have those principles, we then have the responsibility to do that difficult work of contextualizing these principles into our modern day culture. You see, church, it's not, it's not a... That's what it says, so that's what we're going to do. Mentality. That completely removes the deep spiritual work that God wants to do in each of us. The spiritual work of discerning how God is calling us to reflect his character within our culture today. And when we don't do that work, (laughs) when we don't go through that difficult process of discernment, it ends up We pick and choose these little commands. But if we do go through that difficult work, we don't have to pick and choose which of these commands we have to follow and which of these commands we can conveniently forget about. We get to experience the joy of answering that question. What is this teaching telling me about who God is? And how is God uh, calling me to reflect the spirit of that teaching in my world today. And ultimately, church, if our conclusions on our character do not lead us toward the goal of life and true happiness, as Jesus explains in the Beatitudes, and ultimately, 
if our conclusions don't lead us and those around us into closer communion with God, then, friends, we've arrived at the wrong conclusions. Is all of this kind of making a little bit of sense? I know this goes uh, just one step further than Christ goes here in Matthew 5, but it, it's the implications of what Christ is saying here in Matthew 5. And I think this is really an important conversation that's often uh, overlooked or even disregarded whenever we talk about Christian ethics. But you see, this is the biggest indictment of, of the Pharisees. Uh, this is Jesus' biggest indictment of the Pharisees of his day. They were concerned with following Torah for the sake of following Torah. And they were doing it in such a way that it sucked the life and the heart out of these commands. They were not upholding moral perfection in order to draw them closer to God. They were upholding moral perfection for the sake of being morally perfect. And this, in an ironic turn of events, disproved, it disproved whatever righteousness they thought they had. Jesus says the Torah and the writings of the prophets have a purpose, which he intends to see through to completion. And until then, not even the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet is going to disappear from these writings. And this, I believe, is why the Apostle Paul wrote some 35 years later from prison. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Jesus has not come to abolish the law, but to see the law and the prophets, but to see that the law and the prophets are properly interpreted and lived out. This is what it means to fulfill. Therefore, Jesus says, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here is using some wordplay <laughs> that I think is easily overlooked when we're just reading it from the English. See, back in that day, it was, common, it was common practice for rabbis to, as a sort of theological exercise, uh, place the commands of God into sort of two categories. There were the light commands and there were the heavy commands. The light, the, these were commands that were uh, less important to follow. The light commands were less important. The heavy commands were the commands which were of greatest importance. And so Jesus is playing off of this idea by saying, whoever sets aside one of these so-called light commands and teaches others accordingly, it means teaches others to also uh, set that command aside, teaching uh, people that these commands don't really matter, then that person will be called light within the kingdom of heaven. But, Jesus says, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called heavy within the kingdom of God. What he's doing here is essentially elevating the importance of these light commands. And Jesus goes on then from there, that thesis. He goes on to give six examples 
where he pairs a heavy command with a light command, and he places them, or seems to place them, on the same level. And he does so with extreme and sometimes graphic intensity. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. Heavy command, right? (laughs) But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment. Clearly, just getting angry at someone is different than murdering someone. And yet Jesus seems to place these on the same level. He goes on. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, clearly these are different acts, and yet Jesus places them on the same level. He keeps going with four more examples, laying out an extremely convicting challenge for anyone to hear. Regardless of whether you want to uphold the law or completely throw it out the window, these are radical ideas. And so what is Jesus doing here? What's the point of this? Is he setting up some impossible ideal for uh, his people to follow? Well, I think in a basic sense, Jesus is illustrating what it looks like to fulfill the law and the prophets. This is what it truly looks like to practice and teach these commands. But remember... Jesus is preaching these words to a first century Jewish audience, some of whom don't really care about the law, and some of whom are only following it for the sake of following it. It's just a box to check, right? But Jesus is coming in and saying, no, you are not more righteous if you throw out these commands. But also at the same time, just because you don't kill someone doesn't mean you're righteous either. Jesus says, yes, The law is still important, but you guys are completely missing the point. Author Mike Erie says this. What Jesus is saying here is that anger and murder don't have the same consequence, but it's the same origin. It's the same origin. One of my former theology professors, Dr. Chris Bounds, a few years ago, was giving a, do- a lecture on the doctrine of original sin. This idea that because of Adam's sin in uh, Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, all of humanity has now inherited this propensity to choose sin. In fact, apart from God's grace, we are completely incapable of choosing anything but sin. That's what the lecture was about. And in that lecture, Dr. Bounds asked this question. He said, Are all sins equal in the eyes of God? Or are some sins worse in the eyes of God? Are all sins equal in the eyes of God? The narrative of the evangelical church at large says, yes, all sins are equal in the eyes of God. And this seems to be supported by the words of Christ here in Matthew chapter 5, right? And so in that lecture, I watched as many of my fellow peers in that room responded with the expected, yes, of course, all sins are equal within the eyes of God. Sin is sin. But I'll never forget, Dr. Bounds looked back at this room, which was full of aspiring Bible scholars, (laughs) and with great intensity, 
He said, no, all sins are not equal in the eyes of God. If they were, then that would make God to be a monster. And he went on to explain, if I tell my wife a little white lie, that's still sin. But it is incomparable to the evil of the calculated murder of millions of innocent people. The equalization of sin, Dr. Bounds said, is not in the acts of sin. In other words, the sins themselves are not equal in weight. But the equalization of sin is the nature of sin which we inherit from the fall. In other words, our acts of sins themselves are not equal within the eyes of God. However, within any one sin that we commit, within any one act of sin that we commit, there is the seed of all other sins because of our fallen human condition. Anger and murder are not the same thing. And I don't believe that Jesus ever pretended that they were. His point here is not to say that all sins are equal. His point is that the same seed of sin which causes you to hate your brother in Christ can explode into murder. Therefore, if we allow that small sin to flourish, we are not righteous simply because we don't commit the greater sin. What does that mean? It means that we don't get to conveniently pick and choose which commands we follow. It means that we don't get to be anti-abortion while at the same time standing outside the abortion clinics screaming all kinds of nasty insults at the people inside. And it means we don't get to advocate for the poor and for the oppressed while at the same time conveniently ignoring the very clear sexual ethic that Christ teaches. When we pick and choose or uphold the commands that suit us while at the same time writing off the others as impractical or unattainable, church, we are no better than the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Venerating this book without actually following the words written inside it is exactly the main issue that Jesus addresses with the Pharisees. But it's not just the acts that are at issue here. Jesus chooses a few examples to highlight that the issue of righteousness goes far deeper than just the acts which are committed. It points directly to the underlying human condition of our fallen nature. It points to our persistent tendency to choose what is wrong over what is right. And you might say, I might yell at the guy who cut me off in traffic, right? But at least I don't go out and murder him for it. (laughs) Or I might do this small thing, but at least I'm not out here doing all of this huge, ginormous sin, right? Insert whatever moral issue you can possibly think of. But Jesus is saying, no, it doesn't actually work like that. By committing the smaller sins, you are already uh, giving in to that sin nature. That seed of sin is already beginning to take root within you. And so what are we supposed to do about it? (laughs) 
What are we supposed to do with these words of Christ? What are we supposed to do with these ethical principles that Jesus teaches us? How does all of this contribute to our understanding of the kingdom ethics? And maybe most importantly, how does this deepen our understanding of what it means to live as disciples of Jesus Christ today? As the American Civil War was nearing its end, President Abraham Lincoln began to draft up his plan for the reconstruction of the South and the reunification of our nation. Given the tragedy that the country had just suffered at the hands of the rebellion of the South, one would have expected that Lincoln's plan would have included strict punishments, maybe some retaliation for the devastation that had occurred at the hands of the South. However, Lincoln had the exact opposite in mind. His plan was rooted firmly in the idea of forgiveness. In his second inaugural address, 1865, President Lincoln said these words, With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. See, there was no hate. There was no need for retaliation or retribution. Lincoln desired nothing more than to see brothers united once again and for the first time in our nation's history for it to be true that all men are created equal. Church, I believe that this type of radical forgiveness is indicative of the kingdom ethic. No anger, no retaliation, no retribution, just a desire for the goodwill of all, regardless of what they have done to us, to anyone. Because this type of radical disposition is what leads us to life and communion with our God. This is the heart which underlies all of those 613 commands of the Old Testament. And this is the heart which underlies all of the commands of the New Testament. It's an ethic which is built on the foundations of love, mercy, acceptance, and justice. It's an ethic that says when your neighbor comes to ask you for a cup of sugar, you give them the whole bag. And then you invite them over for dinner. You see, it's not a set of right and wrong. It's not a line in the sand that tells us what we can and can't do. It's a matter of whether or not our actions reflect the character of our God in our culture. And it's more than just saying, I don't smoke or I don't drink, right? It's more than saying, I give my tithe every week. It's building your life around the actions and ideas which draw you and those around you closer to the likeness of Jesus Christ. There's a quote that's often attributed to John Wesley, the namesake of our Wesleyan church, that goes like this. Do all the good you can. 
by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, for as long as ever you can. (laughs) Friends, this is the kingdom ethic. This is the law of love. What if, when these words were spoken by our Lord, what if he was serious? What might change if Christians truly put these words, put these principles into practice today? Not just on Sundays, but on every day of the week. Church, I can only imagine, (laughs) I can only imagine the kind of impact we might have on this broken and hurting world. I want to see Christians be Christians. And I want to see the church be the church. And it's not going to happen by some charismatic leader just getting a huge following or church behind him or anything like that. It's only going to happen as we rediscover these beautiful words of Jesus Christ and truly do that spiritual work of discerning how to best live them out within our culture today. That is the revival that we need. And that's the revival that I am praying for.